You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. This is a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series, where I interview women attorneys and law firm owners about their career path and their experience as an entrepreneur, including why they became a lawyer, how their practice has evolved, their biggest challenges and successes as both attorneys and business owners, and their vision for the future. They share their philosophies about business and life. Don't reinvent the wheel. Whatever you're going through, these ladies have been there and done that already. Learn from their mistakes and from their successes. Find out what works for them and what didn't. And you'll find that their inspiration, motivation, and challenges are probably very similar to your own. Whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. I hope you enjoy these ladies' stories. You are listening to Wake Up Call the Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and this is another edition of the Hashtag FemSquire series. Joining me today is Jennifer Gilman, founder and president of the Gilman Strategic Group. She's also known as the law firm matchmaker. She helps law firm rainmakers who are feeling frustrated, unappreciated, or likely have outgrown their current firm to find their exact right perfect fit at a new firm. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Nice to have you. Thanks very much. It's nice to be here. I love talking to uh, what we refer lovingly to as recovering attorneys. (laughs) That's what I call myself too. (laughs) Yes. There are a lot of them out there or perhaps aspiring recovering attorneys. (laughs) We can talk more about that later. Um, But I love your moniker, the law firm matchmaker. When I first became acquainted with you, I was very curious as to what that was. I wasn't sure if it was like a dating website or or what it was exactly. So why don't you tell us what it is? Sure. And while in my personal life, I've made a couple of marriages and I do like that kind of matchmaking too. This was um, matchmaking in a professional way because I think you spend so many hours at work that you need to have the right match. It's kind of like a professional marriage instead of a social marriage because I wanted to make that long-term match for lawyers, not just have them hop around every couple of years because they were miserable. I wanted to find them their forever place if I could. Well, I think everybody wants that. So let's back up a little bit though. I do like to start every interview out with the same question. Where did you go to college and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I went to Brandeis in Waltham, Massachusetts, and I loved it. But when I got there, I already knew I wanted to go to law school. I came from a family of lawyers and I actually really enjoyed practicing law. I'm not a recovering lawyer who hated it the whole time. So I knew I was going to law school. And I also knew that I could major in anything I wanted because there wasn't a particular major I needed. So I was an English major and I specialized in the Victorian novel. 
And it was fantastic. I got to sit in the comfy chairs at the library and read a book I always wanted to read anyway, but never got around to. And so I've read all the classics and I, it was great. I loved it. That sounds awesome. I wish I had done that. What is your favorite book? Pride and Prejudice. Why English though? Why not history? Why not? I don't know. You know, political science. It seems to be what everybody who's going to law school majors in. Well, I did um, a minor in uh, legal studies slash political science because I liked the one professor who taught a bunch of the classes and he did have some law related classes and I was very interested in law, but everybody said, you know, the people I knew who were already lawyers who were trying to give me advice said that there wasn't any one particular major that was going to help you in law school or as a lawyer later in life. And I should just study what I really loved. So I was really glad that somebody had told me that because I spent four years, you know, as an English major, which I really loved. And my electives were things that I was really interested in. And I had an amazing four years in college. You got really great advice because I always tell people now, young people that are going to college that it's almost doesn't matter if you're a liberal arts major, what you really major in, you know, for reasons we all understand now. But I wish going back in time, I had just used that opportunity to just be indulgent and learn and read and not worry so much about the future. So you absolutely did it the right way. So tell me, what was it about law? I know you said you had family members, but sometimes people don't gravitate towards what their family members do. Why did you? Well, I think um, I was good at other things. I was um, a very enthusiastic student. So for a while, I gravitated towards science a little bit. And I was very interested. I even won like a science award for sixth grade graduation. And I was even, my my family was hoping that we would have a non-lawyer in the family. So they were like, maybe you could be a doctor. You could be our first doctor. That would be so great. And I really was interested in science. And I, I even watched surgery on TV and I took an anatomy class. But um, sadly, I didn't enjoy math as much as I enjoyed science. And when you get to the upper levels of science, you have to do, I could do the math. I just didn't enjoy it. And I always, it was always easier, the English and history and those kind of classes. And I thought that was like a cop out, like, well, that's too easy. I should do something more challenging. But all along, everybody would say, I mean, I was, I was respectful of my teachers, but I could convince them to do things. I would argue in you know a polite way and I, I could influence them. And people used to always say, and you know, when they give you notes on report cards or sign the autograph book when you're a young kid, like you would make a great lawyer. You should really think about law school. So finally, at some point I was like, well, it's what I really like and it's what I'm really good at. Maybe it's okay to do something, even if it seems like it comes too naturally to me. And my dad and I were really, really close. And we used to talk about Supreme Court cases and what he was doing at work. And um, I don't know. I just, um, it always felt like something that I was naturally interested in. Maybe it was in your blood. (laughs) Maybe. So tell me about your dad. What kind of lawyer was he? He started out as a more general lawyer with a small firm, but um, actually, until you ask me right now, it didn't occur to me, but 
his small firm had a succession planning issue, which is one of my things that I talk about a lot now. There were three older partners and two younger partners. And when the three older partners all retired at the same time, they didn't really have a plan for how they would grow out the firm and keep it going. So they went their separate ways. And he ended up going in-house and he worked at a bank that got taken over by another bank and another bank. And so he was an in-house lawyer at a I think the same bank the whole time, which kept getting renamed. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. That is a big issue that actually a lot of lawyers don't even think about. It's sort of like telling people to do their will. We all think that we have forever and we can't die until our will is done. So we just put it off. And I think that's um, very wise to recommend that to attorneys. Were there other lawyers in your family? Yes. My whole family is lawyers. My grandfather, who was the child of immigrants, I was told as a child, he worked in a factory during the day and he went to law school at night. And then he would come home and drink strong cups of tea while he did all of his homework. And he'd have just a couple hours of sleep and go back to the factory. And he had his own law firm. He did a lot of um, like real estate transactional work and that sort of thing. But he was really bad at charging people who couldn't afford to pay. So (laughs) when I was a kid, he would, uh, the the people who he said, oh no, it's okay. It's fine. They always wanted to give him something in return. So we ate at a lot of restaurants that were failing. (laughs) He used a lot of dry cleaners all over and that sort of thing. He actually, um, he made his money in real estate investment on the side. And I think his law practice was really kind of a service to the community almost. It was really nice. And my uncle went into business with him when he got older. So um, they had their own firm and his brother actually became a lawyer. So my great uncle and... um, my dad was a lawyer and my brother went to law school after me, but I don't think he ever really wanted to. He was a history major and he couldn't think of a better idea, but we have a bunch of cousins that are lawyers. I mean, we could probably start a really large law firm with just relatives. <laughs> yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people do go into it because it's sort of the family business and they love it, but then... Sometimes they kind of look back on things like, I think I only did that because it was in the family. But it's, and it's also interesting to me that you, when you say you're a recovering attorney, you didn't just flee the industry or the profession because you hated it because so many people do. So I can't wait to get into why that happened for you. And you're actually really lucky to have found two, two professions that you seem to really enjoy. If you weren't a lawyer, I mean, what do you think you would have done? Or is that really the Sure. I had a professor at Brandeis who really wanted me to um, get an advanced degree in English. He said that he would sponsor me and he would help me with my dissertation. And it would, you know, that's something that I should really think about. I should get my doctorate in English and I could be a professor. And, and he kept saying, it's such a waste of talent. All the smart ones go to law school and I lose them. And he was almost angry when I got my first acceptances to law school and he could see how excited I was about it. Uh, (laughs) I think I probably would have uh, pursued some kind of advanced degree in English. And I don't know if I would have written or, or worked for a publisher, done something like that, maybe. Um, in, 
in later life, I, I learned that I'm really talented at plating food. And a friend asked me to start a catering company with him once. But then we decided that um, all of our jobs would be when we wanted to spend our time with our friends and family. So we never started it. We thought like nights and weekends is when we want to see our families and socialize with our friends. And that's when all of the, uh, the events we would be catering would be. So we were trying to figure out how to be caterers, but only during business hours. So that's pretty niche. <laughs> yeah, I think that's also a hard industry too. I think it's um, a lot of work and a lot of commitment of time. But that's interesting. You say plating the food, not cooking the food, plating well, the food. I'm a pretty food. good cook, but I can make anything look really appealing. Oh, so like I could go to Trader Joe's and buy a bunch of, you know, ingredients and make a really pretty platter. And it, it's all about color and presentation. Well, there are people that make careers out of that. I think they're called food stylists. Yes. And but sometimes I, they don't even use food. I once read about yeah. it and the milk that looks really white is like Elmer's glue or something. And yeah, some of them aren't edible. I heard that too. And actually, you know, Giada De Laurentiis used to be a food stylist. I did not know that. Yeah. So good trivia for you. So did you know what kind of lawyer you wanted to be? I did not. And I think that um, in law school, you get um, exposure to the litigation side of things. You know, there's always mock trial or their, you know, legal skills or whatever it is. But it even when you take classes in contracts or corporate, they're not telling you like, if you became a corporate lawyer, this is what you'd be working on. So I feel like, I mean, I always like the idea of being on my feet and speaking and arguing. And I never even thought about a transactional career. I was only thinking about litigation. So I started off as a general litigator because I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to focus on. And I thought it sounded really cool that every time I had a new case to work on, I would get to learn a new substantive area. And for a while, it was really fun and I really did enjoy it. But I got to the point where I wanted to feel like I was getting to be an expert at something, that I was good at something. I could answer a question without having to do a whole lot of research. So I did want to specialize in one area after about four years. I think decades ago, there was um, sort of this concept of, I think sort of like what your grandfather did, where I guess maybe there just weren't as many lawyers. So they kind of had the town lawyer, or maybe they had a few of them. And that's who you went to. Um, I worked for a guy way back and he would refer to himself as the country lawyer. And I don't think it's really like that anymore. I think most attorneys have some sort of niche, you know, some sort of specialty. Yeah. So, so I get what you mean about that. It's like that saying, jack of all trades, master of none. Um, yeah, I mean, I do know some very talented partners who still like to have a mix of litigation, but I know from my business now that it's pretty unusual I'm working with a candidate now who does a whole lot of different litigation. And every time I talk with a firm about him, they're confused. Well, what is he specializing? <laughs> He's kind of a general litigator. He likes to have a variety of things. Like they always seem puzzled about it. So people really do specialize. And in the bigger firms, they, they're highly specialized. 
So on the transactional side, sometimes they only work on one type of deal for one type of client. And on the litigation side, it can get pretty specialized too. But um, I actually, I, I really enjoyed my practice. I was not sure what to specialize in. So I looked at jobs on the soft IP side. I really liked some of the trademark stuff I was doing and labor and employment. And I got to the point where I met with some firms and I thought about, well, what would my day-to-day life be? What would it be like to really be a specialist in this area? And I decided that labor and employment sounded like I would enjoy it more because it was more people-oriented. And on the trademark side, I, I wouldn't really be interacting with people or dealing with problems that people had. And it, it turned out to be really engaging practice area. And I quite enjoyed it. Well, you definitely seem like you're a people person. I hope so. <laughs> I have to work with people now. <laughs> yeah, you probably wouldn't be very good at your job if you weren't. So where did you go to law school? I went to NYU. And it was really fun to be in the village. And I was just telling somebody the other day that I I thought I would live in the village when school was finished, but I didn't realize how much they subsidized our housing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I lived at West Third and Mercer. It was a great address, but it was very affordable. And then when it came time to look at apartments for my first job out of law school, I found out that it was a little pricey there. So I moved with a friend from law school and we actually lived in Tudor City near the UN, which was really fun too. Oh, that's very cool. So you did the general litigation for a few years? Mm-hmm. At and- two different firms, actually. I, I did the reverse commute to New Jersey for a while because I didn't want to be stuck on a document review for five years. I knew a lot of lawyers and I knew I wanted to be in court the first day and doing real stuff and speaking to clients and all of that. And I went and talked to the career counselors at NYU and they said, well, the really big firms in New York that are coming to interview candidates, you might get stuck on a doc review, but the smaller firms like to hire people who already have a little bit of experience and training. They don't really like to hire recent grads. So you'd be better off at a large firm in a different geographic area. And they asked me where I had grown up. And I said, I grew up in New Jersey. I said, perfect. Here's your list. Apply to these firms. So I did and I I summered at one and and I ended up going there and it wasn't exactly as different from the experience my law school friends were having in New York, but I was doing the reverse commute and paying double taxes and getting paid less than they were. So after a while, I decided to move back to New York (laughs) in my practice. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Did you get to go to court right away though, like you wanted? No, it didn't really work out that way. I got stuck on a document review, even in New Jersey. (laughs) Well, I guess you have to pay your dues, right? Yeah. I mean, I did some things that I, I don't think it was their fault. I was really green and I didn't have a lot to contribute. I'm sure you wouldn't send somebody who was, who was that inexperienced to court, but we did have this huge document review in the office that wasn't even in my group. And they just pulled anyone who they could spare. We were uh, reviewing dusty microfiche that came out of boxes that we had to clean off. And so it wasn't paper, it was microfiche, but it was months. (laughs) And I figured I could have probably done that for more money in New York and taking the subway instead of New Jersey Transit. 
Yeah, I definitely think so. It sounds like that wasn't exactly lighting you up either. No, it was not exactly lighting me up. And I, I went to another firm, which I really liked, but they um, they were one of the last medium-sized firms in New York. There were about 40 lawyers when I was there and they were being courted for merger opportunities by a bunch of larger firms. And depending on which merger opportunity they chose, some of us were going to be happier or less happy, depending on the type of work we were doing. And um, they got bought out by a large firm that wouldn't let me do the trademark and employment law that I had been doing, wanted me to do general commercial litigation at the the next place. And I, I didn't really want to just specialize in that. So I looked at some other opportunities and it turned out to be good because it was a natural break. A lot of people went over to the new firm and a lot of people didn't, and there were no hard feelings. And so it was a good time to um, take another look. And that's when I went to specialize in employment law. Okay. That was my next question. And how long did you do that? Um, I was at a firm for a little over five years, and then I was in-house with a client for a little while. And so altogether, I was a lawyer for 12 years. Did you like the litigation? I loved the litigation for a while. And and then I got a, my fill of it. I, I worked on these really big employment law cases, and most of them would never have gone to trial because it's too risky to have you know, maybe a plaintiff who is um, somebody that the jury feels, you know, sympathy for or something like that, win like millions of dollars. So we would always make a motion for summary judgment. And often if we didn't prevail, the client would want to settle at that point. But I had this crazy year where there were four trials in a row that I was staffed to, which never happened. And it was like, I don't think I had even a weekend off for most of the year. It was really a lot of hours. And I wasn't the Perry Mason first chair. I was the second chair, like writing the motions every night and passing the documents back and forth. And it it wasn't enough in-court excitement to make up for the lack of sleep for so many months. So I kind of lost my taste for litigation after that. Yeah, it's not the way they show it on television, is it? <laughs> I don't I'm know. Sure, there are very exciting moments here and there, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe the average person would like a, a bird's eye view, and they might find some of it exciting. I bet a lot of it they would not find exciting. But I don't know if you ever watched The Good Wife. I loved that show. I heard and it was terrific. I never got a chance. Maybe I'll catch it now. Yeah, it's a good show, and you know. But Juliana Margulies, she was great playing an attorney, and but it never happens the way they portrayed it on the show, right? Like she goes to court, she's always got the winning argument. She always knows exactly <laughs> what to say. She always looks fabulous. She has the best attire on, and they have a private investigator that works for the firm that will show up in court, you know, as she's giving her her, you know, closing argument and present new evidence, which we all know you can't even do, but it happened on the show. But so it's not like that. I hate to burst anyone's bubble. It's not really like that. 
Um, I hate to show my age, but when I was uh, a junior lawyer, I was watching Allie McBeal, which was even less realistic. A case would come in and they'd be like, oh, yeah, we're getting all prepared to go to court tomorrow, even though normally the discovery process takes many months. And then they'd be at the bar for happy hour, even though they had court tomorrow and the case just came in in the morning. No one worked all night. (laughs) No one did anything boring and they would win the next day. No one was worried that they stayed out too late. Yeah, no, I know. It's it's funny how that happens, but um, I can't think of any lawyer shows that I actually would say are very realistic. Can you? I don't think so. We should make one. I think no one would watch. <laughs> <I> know, <right? laughs> it might too, be too boring. We can Watching jazz people it up. figure out how to do their timesheets. <laughs> we can jazz it up a little bit. We can. <laughs> Well, I think all of the lawyer shows that people enjoy the most are probably the least realistic. I got hooked on suits for a while. They had great outfits and a guy who wasn't even a lawyer was the best one and, you know, everything was happening, but that wasn't terribly realistic either. No, I I guess they have to do something to draw you in and make you watch because we don't want to watch real life, right? We we want (laughs) an escape from real life. But oh, they, watch Jen review boxes of microfiche. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. No, I, I don't think I could do that. So did you get though? Did you get to do a trial? I never got to first chair a trial. The cases were too big. But I did once I kind of lost my taste for litigation, I was very lucky. And a mentor of mine at the firm where I was the labor employment lawyer. She really didn't do any litigation. She she had decided a long time ago she didn't care for it, but she was a really big rainmaker and she got to do what she wanted. So for a while, I got a lot of great opportunities because I worked for her and she didn't really care to do the litigation. So I got to do plaintiff's depositions and argue motions and you know do some really exciting stuff. And then she went away on vacation and she put on her voicemail that anybody who needed her should call me. And I had to handle her day-to-day stuff and her clients liked me. And then there was something that was kind of a real problem that came up that I was able to handle. I always liked the advice and counsel part. I was like talking to people and hearing what was wrong and how I could help them. And there was something that turned out to be like a, a really big red flag issue that I picked up. And she was, I guess, impressed by that. And when she came back and it was all fine, she kind of divided up the clients who would call me first and the clients who would call her first because she was so busy and she was always on the phone and somebody would call and you know there'd be all these people on hold. So it made sense for the clients to get to speak to somebody a little bit faster. But it was really fun for me because I got to do a lot more of that advice and counsel side than any of the other associates. So how did you transition into being a recruiter? Well, (laughs) where was the seed for that? (laughs) Accidentally. The whole time I was a lawyer, when recruiters would call me about a job they wanted to submit me for, they would often ask me like, oh, well, you know, we have an opening at our place. You sound really friendly. You would probably like this. And I would say, no, you know, I really enjoy my legal practice. And that job you're talking about sounds interesting. I would like to apply for that or 
you know, I really enjoy my legal practice. But if you ever find, you know, this dream job, let me know. But I, I want to stay a lawyer. But um, after I had my first child, I was in house with a client for a little while. But like doing, it was it was a pretty intense schedule. And we we had bought a house out in New Jersey, so I was doing the commute and. I didn't see my daughter for about two years when she was awake during the week because we would leave before she got up and we'd come home and she was ready to sleep. And the nanny we brought with us from New York was really the only one who saw her. So I was looking for an in-house job in New Jersey to have like a more manageable in-house schedule because this job was a little bit unusual. And also um, to give up having such a long commute because it made us nervous. Like what if something happened and we couldn't get home fast because of the train schedule and everything, it would be easier to have a shorter driving commute and be able to leave at a moment's notice. So I made it to um, the fourth round at a Japanese pharmaceutical company. And I was scheduled to meet with the GC when another recruiter called me to ask me if I wanted to apply for the same job. And I said, oh gosh, I already did apply for that. I've had three rounds. I'm waiting until they schedule me to meet with the GC. And he said, well, wow, my guy got dinged after the first round. I probably should have sent you instead. <laughs> Why don't I take you out to lunch and we can talk about you know, your next move. And the next time I have an in-house opening, I'll call you. So I was like, okay, fine. And I go to lunch with him. And the entire time, all he talked about was how I should come be a recruiter at his company. I'm like, we just talked about how I want an in-house job being a lawyer. He's like, you will like this better. I promise. And he made me promise that if I didn't get the job at the pharmaceutical company, I would give him two weeks. And if I didn't like it after two weeks, he would never mention it again. And he would leave me alone and try and find me an in-house job instead. So I, we had to make a deal that he wasn't going to get me dinged purposely. And um, it got down to three people, but they chose someone else. And I was disappointed, but I'm like, all right, so I'll give this guy Jim two weeks and then I'm going to have to look for another job. And he was right. I really did like it a lot. Wow. If that's not fate, I don't know what is. <laughs> Do you ever look back on that and in awe? That experience? I feel like there were so many people telling me that I would enjoy recruiting over the years that it was going to come to a head at some point. If it wasn't at that moment, I would have found a different job in law and somebody else would have offered me an opportunity in recruiting. I think like all the signs were pointing in that direction for kind of a long time before that. Well, were you seriously considering it or was it just because of the circumstances that you didn't get the job and you're like, okay, well, what do I have to lose at this point? Is that how you looked at it? Yeah. I mean, I really, I, I looked at it like I don't have a sales background and I actually like law. All the recruiters I know who were ever lawyers practiced law for like a minute because they hated it and they were looking for something else to do, some way to escape. And I really enjoyed my practice. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I had nothing to lose. I didn't have another job lined up yet. So I figured, all right, well, maybe I'll see. And it it just never felt like a job. It felt like I was getting paid to like 
I like learning new things. So I was learning about, you know, some new firms that I wasn't familiar with. I was learning the market and how things worked. And I got paid to make friends. I talked on the phone. I took people to lunch and I matched them up with things. And it it just felt like something that I would have wanted to do anyway. And it was cool when I made a placement and I got paid for it. So it did seem like, and it was also, I had at that point, a baby and a toddler and it was very, very easy to fit our family life around the schedule because, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit more flexible than, than a law job in, in so many ways. And it was, I mean, my husband's a lawyer and with a baby who wasn't sleeping through the night yet and a toddler who needed a lot of attention, it was hard to have both of us practicing at the same time. Did you ever miss practicing law? I think I would have, but my husband is a labor and employment attorney. So I always got to talk to him about what was going on. And of course, I'm sure he never gave away any confidences or anything like that. But he would ask my opinion about things sometimes because even though we were both labor and employment lawyers, we had our own focus when when we were both still practicing. And I knew a lot about leave-related law and FMLA and certain things like that. And I had had a case about you know age discrimination in a particular circumstance that he asked me a question about. And so you know when he shares stories about his day or so, it it makes me feel like I still sort of have one foot in practicing. Yeah, you still get a lot of what I do now is a little bit like employment counseling. Like that advice and counsel I used to do for the clients is now for the law firm clients and the partner candidates. So some of it carried over. Do you keep your license current? I don't anymore. I'm not going back to practicing. So how many years did you keep it current? For at least like probably five years or so. Cause I was always like, well, maybe I want to do something on the side or, and, and then it got to the point where I, I knew I was never going to want to again. I really like what I'm doing. And I, I don't think that I want to start my own firm. And I think having run my own company, I don't want to work for somebody else again. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when that moment, when you realize I don't need to keep my license current anymore, I'm not going back. So I like that. So what did you have to learn to get acclimated to being a recruiter? Because it it is a sales job, right? Yeah. And you didn't have sales experience. And, And I'm asking, I'm interested because I've had sales training over the years because something I'm sure you can appreciate is that in law school, they don't teach you how to run a business. Right. And they're two different things. Even as a recruiter, you're a recruiter, but now you're also a business owner. So you have to learn how to run a business. Right. Well, I'm a business owner now, and I've had a lot of training and coaching recently in order to start and run my own business. But when I left practicing law to become a recruiter, I didn't have any sales background. I was not a rainmaker when I was an associate. So I didn't even have sales background like business development. I really needed to start from scratch. And thankfully, the guy I worked for was really pretty patient. He had also been a labor and employment lawyer and at a different firm, but like we had a lot in common. And he could see that, you know, he figured out how to get the sales part of it. And so 
his insights were, were pretty relevant to, you know, what I was learning. We had a different style and we certainly had a different way of approaching a lot of things, but he was very helpful. And I think that if I had just been thrown in somewhere and not had like a mentor, it would have been a little bit different. So what are like some of the highlights of what you learned? Like if you, if somebody was new starting out as a recruiter, what would be the first couple of things you might tell them? Well, I, I guess um, now that I've had some coaching and I have, you know, a better mindset, I would say, I, I always said, I always made cold calls instead of sending emails because when I was still practicing as a lawyer, I never read any of those emails, but I would usually answer my phone or listen to the message that somebody left. So I always did that. And I always, the other people in the office were nervous to call because a lot of people didn't like recruiters and they would hang up or say something mean. And I would say, well, what are they going to do? Come through the phone and kill you? They can't do anything. The worst they could do is say something that's not very friendly or slam down the phone. Like those are the two worst things that could happen. They can't, you know, get you arrested. They can't hurt you. They don't know where you live. They're not going to come find you. So it's a pretty low risk behavior. And so I looked at it that way. And I always figured, I always wanted to keep challenging myself because when I kept doing the same thing over and over, it felt like it got boring or stale. And so that's how I moved into working with partners because it scared me a little. And I thought that when you're a little bit uncomfortable, you rise to the challenge a little bit more. And I was also getting a little tired of working with the associates because as I got older, they were younger and the millennials didn't care about the same things that we did coming up. They didn't think that they had to pay their dues or work really long hours. They had different priorities that I, I have to say, I didn't always fully understand. And I, I would find somebody a perfect job, exactly what they asked for. And, and then they would ask me, well, what's the gym situation? I I need a gym that's at least only two blocks away. Can you check that? No, I can't. That is just not what I'm going to (laughs) do. Yeah, I can can relate to that. Um, There's definitely a a generation gap there uh, because I've worked with millennials and I don't have them quite figured out. I don't know if I ever will. I guess that's the nature of a generation gap, but I can relate to that. And and the other thing is, I mean, once I was trained and I understood the business better, I understood that our model had, you know, at at first we were doing a little bit more in-house, which was fun. I placed a general counsel in a bank in New York and that was like super fun because it was, he was important and everyone was happy and it was a big commission for the office. But a lot of the in-house stuff was a lot of stop and start. They would interview a bunch of people and then say, oh, sorry, we don't have the headcount to hire somebody. Or yeah, well, the vice president changed and now we don't want to hire somebody or whatever. And um, on the associate side, it was a lot. It was all law firm facing. So it was a lot of sitting and waiting for our firm to call and say, you know, oh, we need a fourth year real estate associate. And then my job was to scurry around and find all the fourth year real estate associates. And if I got you on the phone and you had four years of real estate experience, my job was to convince you that you wanted to go to that firm. 
And I just couldn't do it. I'd be talking to you and say, Christina, you know what? This doesn't sound like a good fit for you. It sounds more like you're looking for whatever. This other firm would be perfect. They're not looking right now, but I think in about six months, and why don't we stay in touch? And the guy I worked for would get frustrated with that. <laughs> so finally, um, I, I told him that, you know, I really wanted to find somebody their right fit, not try and shove them into the only, you know, job opening we had. And he was like, well, you know, except for a total superstar in a really hot area, it's a little hard to do that. You know, we have to wait until there's a need for an associate. And I was like, well, what if we didn't just work with associates? What if I worked with partners who were moving clients and he was like, you could try, but you know, that's a little, it's, it's a little long-term, it's a little speculative or whatever. And I decided I wanted to do it anyway. And I was very intimidated about calling them at first. And my mental block with it was that I had never been a rainmaker when I was a lawyer. So I was worried that I couldn't put myself in their place. But I got to the point where I realized that as accomplished as they were, and as much as I admired how they had put together a great practice, they couldn't do the job search activity that I knew how to do. So I was bringing them something of value. And a lot of them were very happy to talk to me. Well, it sounds like a lot of the mindset issues that people have when they're starting out in sales, for instance, being really uncomfortable with cold calling you were really at a great advantage because you didn't have that issue. I mean, people will spend thousands of dollars on coaching and years trying to get over that fear, but you didn't even have it. Well, I'm not saying my cold calls were perfect. I just wasn't intimidated about making them. <laughs> well, that's what I mean is so many people are just intimidated that they'll find every reason to not make the calls. And it it's easier to do something by email, right? I mean, but you're right. What are they going to do? What is the worst thing they're going to do? Hang up on you or say no? You know, get angry, whatever. But you move on to the next I mean, I wasn't doing anything wrong. It's not like they can report me to the Better Business Bureau or, you know, send me a summons or something. I think it's, it's a little hard to get through the layers of people that you have to get through to get to the person that you want to speak with. And Some people find that uncomfortable and I did too, but it just, I just wanted to talk to the person I was trying to reach. So I kept going with it. Well, it's definitely to your credit that you um, were, seemed to be so ahead of the curve when you started out in sales. And I think it was a lot of foresight on your part to recognize that it might be a better fit for you to try to hitch partners together. Because I don't think a lot of people are doing that, are they? Well, I think that there are certainly a lot of recruiting agencies who work with partners and groups and even do law firm mergers, but they also do everything else. And I had this idea that it required a lot of attention to work with partners. And I, I wanted to test it out and see if I could do it first. But um, I did successfully, you know, find some partners and place them. And then I, I was talking with, you know, the guy I worked for. I'm like, I want to focus just on this. I want us to have it on the website and brand and advertise. And I need this database. And I want to go to that conference. And 
And he was like, well, that's not really what the main part of our business is. And we, you know, it was just, it got to the point where even though I, I still am in touch with him and I think, you know, he's a nice guy and I appreciate all the training. We were just moving in two different directions. I could see because I started recruiting in 2009 that during a downturn, there's no associate hiring. There's no in-house hiring, but partners with books of business are in demand no matter what happens to the economy. And I wanted to set myself up the next time there was a dip in the economy. And I thought that partners are, are very exacting. They've reached the pinnacle of their career and they want to make sure that they work with an expert. And if I couldn't brand myself as an expert in partner recruiting, I thought they would maybe use someone else. So I wanted to start my own company where that's all we did. I think it's brilliant. I can't wait to see where you come up with next, but um, <laughs> I'll ask you that maybe at the end if you have any ideas. But um, so did you leave to start your current business at that point or did you were you able to stay there and do that for a little while? I was able to stay there and do partner recruiting for a little while. He wasn't that happy because there are a couple of them. I mean... There are a lot of heartbreaker ones that don't happen at the last minute. So I was working with this really great healthcare transactional partner back when healthcare transactional was the hottest practice area in New Jersey. And he had a nice book of business that he had built up from scratch. He started the group at his firm, but he didn't have the right platform. And he really was looking to go to a bigger firm. And I got him offers at two firms that he had never been able to get an interview with before. And he was like, wow, I never thought those two firms would even want to talk to me. And now they both want to hire me and the pay is really generous and whatever. I don't even know which one's pick. I'm going to talk to my wife about it tonight. And then the next morning he called to say his wife convinced him to hang out at a shingle so he could keep more of his more of the money and not share it with a big firm. And then there was another guy who was terrific. He was this young rising star teeny partner who already had a huge book of business, even though he wasn't even 40 yet. He was like clearly on the rise and he was at the wrong firm that, I mean, didn't have trust in estates or tax. He was in, it was a really bad fit, but he was almost doing well in spite of that. And we started working with him. I got him two offers and he was in the car on the way to get his third offer in person. Like we knew that's what was going to happen. And he got a call from his wife. His daughter had been rushed to the hospital. So Mm. of course we called it off and she was very young at the time and she needed um, some fairly serious surgery. I don't think it was life-threatening, but the recovery time was really long. And during the time that his daughter was in the hospital and then home recovering, he took a lot of time off from work and his other partners were like, no, you be with your family. We'll cover everything here. Don't worry. And then he decided he felt too guilty to leave because they had really stepped up and helped him when he needed them. So those were like two big things that were about to close that didn't end up um, happening. And he kept saying, you know, we could have done a bunch of associates in the time that took. And we were really um, not seeing it the same way after a while. But I, I did place some partners and he was, you know, when we 
when we placed a partner, it was very exciting. And, you know, the, the fee was higher, but it was like more of an accomplishment and the firm was more excited about it. And as the owner of the recruiting agency, I'm sure he felt good about it too, but he just couldn't see how that could be something that could happen on a continuous basis. Well, clearly um, you can (laughs) because you're doing it. (laughs) You ever talk to him now? Yes, we still are in touch and he, I refer him a lot of associates because we don't, we don't recruit associates at our firm. And, you know, every once in a while he'll call me or, um, you know, we, we trade stories sometimes. I, I don't have any ill will. I just really wanted to do something different and he didn't see it the same way. That's all. Well, I'm glad you pursued your your aspirations. Just imagine if you didn't. I would still be very frustrated. I should have probably should have done it a little bit sooner because I probably was not a very ideal employee when I was feeling frustrated about not being able to do exactly what I wanted to. And I actually, it makes me a little bit more sympathetic to some of the partners who have the wrong platform and inadequate resources. Like I I needed some more resources to be able to have the information I needed to place partners. I needed to do some branding and advertising and I couldn't. And that actually happens to a lot of partners at big firms too. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. And the larger the firm, the worse that problem seems to be. So when did you start the Gilman Strategic Group? October 29th, 2018. Okay. So you've been around a minute. And how's it going? Are you blissfully happy? I am really happy. I um, I wish that I had some more recruiters working with me because right now, sometimes I'm the bottleneck. There are more candidates who I'd like to screen than I have time for on my calendar. And sometimes that causes some delay. And, um, you know, they're having um, no business training made it a little bit uh, challenging. I joined a coaching program. I read everything I could. I spend a lot of time reading about business and marketing and mindset you know, I was an English major. I went straight to law school. I never thought I would own a business, but I love it. What were some of the more immediate business challenges you had in the beginning? Well, I guess, I mean, I, because I had been, you know, in a litigation practice, I really didn't even know, like, how do you incorporate What kind of a business model should I choose? What do I have to do? Like, what kind of insurance do I need? What kind of expenses should I agree to? And what kind of things should I wait for? Just like simple budgeting things and also just protecting myself in case something went wrong or... And then as much as I had been a labor and employment lawyer and I had helped clients with hiring, I wasn't a real hiring expert. I I thought I would be. <laughs> I really did. Wow. What do you mean by that? Because you were going into this business to do, to, I guess, to do that. I understand how to find the perfect fit for law firm partners, but I didn't necessarily understand how to hire a vendor to help me with marketing. And I, I had a couple that weren't a great fit. I didn't understand. And I thought I did. I did a lot of training. I did a job description 
didn't quite understand how to find, I wanted somebody who could do the same thing as me. So somebody else who wanted to work with partners and who could do the, the whole life cycle of recruiting. And I found somebody who came from a, a place that I knew who had a similar background to me. She had been a lawyer. She had been a recruiter. She had worked with law firms. We even did some testing because the coaching I do encourages a couple of tests. And I don't know what went wrong. It just, it was a bad fit. And after about six months, we had to just say, this isn't working out. So, um, well, I see what you mean by the hiring. You weren't a hiring expert. You were, yeah, it's very different to fit other people than it is to have to actually hire people that you would be managing. I kind of thought it was going to be the same. And that was the most surprising thing to me that I had helped clients for so long. And as a recruiter, that's really what I do. But I'm not as good at doing it for my own business as I am for others. Yeah, I have found that to be a challenge too. And after being in business at, with at my law firm since 2014, I feel like I'm finally, I'm finally getting better at it. And I think sometimes it's just a matter of knowing who's not a good fit. Just recognizing. Yeah, that I think um, we have um, core values and a mission statement and a vision statement. And every time we learn something from working with a client that didn't work out well or a candidate where something happened or making a bad hire, we do what uh, my coach calls a groundhog day. We look back what worked well, what didn't work well. If I could live that day over, what would I do differently? And so we're getting better. We're definitely getting better. We hired a different recruiter who is, is um, I think, probably going to work out long-term, but maybe not to do what I do because we went with somebody who was less experienced. And I think some of the partners with big books of business that we work with can maybe be a little bit intimidating. And so we've had her work with um, some people who are a little bit newer to business development, who are a little less intimidating to sort of like have a little training. I looked back and wondered if maybe, you know, I worked with associates and in-house positions for so long before I moved on to working with partners. Maybe it wasn't really fair to expect somebody to come in right away and start on partners. So who do you have on staff right now? I have an operations manager who's like the lifeblood of our company. <laughs> she was my virtual assistant VA for a bunch of hours and then more hours and then more hours. And then I made her a regular full-time employee in September of 2020. And she is what keeps the whole company running because I'm on Zoom all day, whether it's for networking or talking with candidates or clients. And I'm, I'm hard to reach and I don't see every email because it's a long day. So she has access to my email and my calendar and the company credit card. And she does all the background stuff that would never get done if I had to do it. We follow the entrepreneurial operating system. So I'm the visionary and she's the integrator. And together, we, we can run the company for now. It's a, it's a goal to get somebody to work for her by um, next fall. 
I like that. That she's working on that now that she's grown with us are kind of beneath her skill set and are not a great use of her time. So we've been using a couple hours of VA time here and there, but we really probably need somebody more dedicated to her. And we have, um, we have this other recruiter. We have a recruiter who's working with us part-time while she decides whether that's something that she wants to do long-term. She's showing a lot of promise. So I hope that's what she decides she wants to do. <laughs> then we have a couple of recruiters that we affiliate with on a regular basis. We work with the candidate together or we pass candidates back and forth. There are like three of those. And we have a marketing team that um, does everything for us, marketing based. So they they write our content, the blog posts and the, the um, LinkedIn posts go up every day during the week. And you know, if, I, if we're sponsoring something or if there's a press release or something like that. And that's been great because when I was in charge of it, it was a little bit more sporadic. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. I think any attorney watching this can relate to that. Um, I, you know, I think one of the things I learned too, maybe later than I would have liked, is it's really important to be able to delegate. And a lot of attorneys can be a bit control freakish and have this mentality that, well, no one's going to do it the way I would do it. And, and that's true, they won't, but it doesn't mean they can't do it, that they won't do it well. And it's really valuable to be able to delegate and get things off your plate. It sounds like you learned that already, though. Well, I I have learned it and I still need to be reminded sometimes. Um Erin, who's our operations manager, is great and she even has like copywriter training. And so when, you know, if I can't get to something, she can easily answer the email or do whatever it is. And it's fine. It's just maybe not the exact words I would choose. And we're always deciding between whether I'm being too exacting or I know my audience so well. And I know that a lawyer would never use that word or that term. And and maybe it's more of a teaching moment. So sometimes it's me. And sometimes I like to think it was important to make that change. (laughs) Yeah. Now it's good to have a non-lawyer to kind of look at things differently the, the way that, well, all your clients are lawyers. So I guess for you, that might be a little bit different. You don't necessarily want the average person. You're not, you're not talking to the average person. Right. Um, but still, I mean, you can get referrals, right? I mean, you can get referrals yeah. from normal people. I'm putting that in finger quotes. <laughs> Although I do find as much as we refine our marketing every way we can, the average person is so nice and so well-meaning. And I do a lot of networking and I introduce people to each other a lot and they always want to return the favor. And so they'll say stuff like, oh my gosh, my neighbor's niece is a second year law student. That's a great candidate for you, right? Um, No, but thank you so much for thinking of me. Maybe one day. Why don't you clarify that? Because I was even questioning, asking for some further clarification before you even started recording as to who you work for and work with. So why don't you tell us that? So I think that because we sort of carved out our own business model, it is a little bit confusing for people. And I guess I should 
take ownership of that. But um, we are candidate facing. We work with the particular lawyer or group of lawyers or small firm that is looking to be placed. And the reason that I wanted to keep it that way is I want to make sure that when I speak with a candidate, that I'm hearing what's on your wish list. What is it that could make this better for you? What kind of platform are you looking for? And we pride ourselves on finding that exact right, perfect fit at the next firm. So it can never be like, oh, I have this job. Let me talk Christina into taking this job because the chances that that's your exact right, perfect fit are a little bit slim. And that would be... It would be fate that I had this one job and that was, you know, the job that was good for you. I think that it requires a lot of listening and hearing whether there's something that I can help with, because as much as I would like to help every single law firm rainmaker who's unhappy, I can't help people who are not unhappy law firm rainmakers who, or who don't want to practice law anymore. So I have a really big network of other people who can. So I work only with lawyers generally who have their own book of business, whether it's clients that will follow them or referral sources that will follow them, but they will be a source of revenue to the firm that they join because my services are free for the lawyer that I'm helping. It's the law firm they join that pays a fee. So the reason the law firm is so interested in having them is because They are skilled at what they do. They may be well-known in the legal community, but they are a source of revenue for the firm. They're bringing that business with them. So sometimes there are lawyers who are are not seasoned enough, don't have their own clients, um, aren't in a position to be called a rainmaker. And I have other recruiters that I can refer them to. I also have some hours one day a week where I do career counseling for people who are looking for something and and help them figure out what um, would be good. But I, my superpower is it takes me about five minutes to figure out if the person I'm speaking with really could be happy at another firm. Sometimes people really want to go in-house or they really want to use their law degree to do something else. They really aren't enjoying law firm practice anymore, or they think they want to be at a law firm, but they have unrealistic expectations. You know, like I want a private jet to pick me up at my house every day and bring me to work. And then I want a private chef to make my lunch. And I want everyone to bow when I walk by. I mean, there are certain things that you're not going to be able to get at the next firm either. But some of the stuff these people want is so reasonable, almost basic, you know, consideration and appreciation. And it's something that makes a really big difference. So how do you know where to find that then? Because you have to find also the other firm that would have the right culture. So how do you do that? Well, I spend a lot of time um, getting to know the law firms, networking, keeping up with firms that we've worked with before, haven't worked with yet, doing a lot of research. We have a lot of... I do a lot of reading. We have a lot of databases available to us that let us search for certain criteria. But sometimes, I mean, what they're looking for 
is, is very easy. You know, like I am a lawyer, everything's going fine, but my best client really needs a a Chicago presence and I'm not able to do work in Chicago. If only I had a firm with an office in Chicago, everybody would be happy. And that's an easy fix. Some of it's not just culture fit. Some of it is there are practice areas missing or there are um, you know, geographic locations missing, or I need a more sophisticated practice. Sometimes it's a nice reason they have to move. You know, whoever it was who represented Jeff Bezos when he was still in his garage with his hand-lettered sign was probably at a smaller firm than the firm who represents Amazon now. At some point, Amazon became a multinational, multi-international, you know, conglomerate, and they they needed a firm with many more practice areas, many more locations, and, and a lot of sophisticated, um, you know, it's bet the company kind of litigation and, you know, first ever done kind of um, transactional work. So at some point, um, clients will look for that more sophisticated representation. Sometimes clients approach the partner and and ask the partner to leave. Sometimes on the other side, clients say the rates are getting too expensive. Every January 1st, your rate goes up by however much and it's it's gotten too expensive for us. We would really like to use you all the time, but now we only use you for really important stuff. Maybe if you went to another firm, we could um, do more work together. So who comes to you? Is it the guy or girl that is looking to leave her firm and go to another firm? Or is it the firm that is looking for a new partner to join them? Well, we thought that we had established our business model so that it was always the candidate who was approaching us saying, I'm desperately unhappy. Could you find me a better match? And then we would do it. And we feel like our marketing is geared in that direction and our website and everything. But we do get about half and half. There are a lot of law firms who approach us and say, you know, we've looked at your website or we've followed you on LinkedIn. It seems like you take a very careful approach and how you deal with your candidates. And we would like to expand a little in this particular area or do some hiring for succession planning or open a new office or whatever it is that they're trying to do. But we want somebody who's not just going to try and make a placement, who's going to try and find somebody who's a good fit for what we're looking for. And it seems like that's kind of where you're going with this. So we'd like to talk with you about it. So we do get a lot of that. And then how do you go about finding the fit? Do you just have this enormous Rolodex, which is should be digital by now, right? <laughs> so I'm dating myself even using that word. <laughs> do you just have this mean. enormous... <laughs> what? <laughs> Do you just have this enormous Rolodex or do you actually just get on the phone and and you know do research and start calling people? Well, do you mean when a law firm approaches us and they're looking for someone? Well, either way, really. So if it's the candidate, him or herself, or a group of partners who approach us, I mean, there are definitely some firms that I know are in the market for something in particular. And I have to always keep in the back of my mind, and we have a list and we have a board with all the stuff, but you know, as I run into lawyers and people who work at law firms, they'll often tell me, oh, if you find a group in Dallas, we'd really like to expand there, or you know, we really want to 
want to build out our New York office. We have some more space or whatever it is. So we do know some of the... We do know some of the needs, but um, a lot of it is just if if I'm working with a rainmaker, so somebody who legitimately has some portable business of some kind that is of the right numbers for the firm I'm approaching, they don't have to know they were looking. That's like if somebody came to me and said, you know, would you like this, you know, new sports car? Maybe. <laughs> you know, it's something attractive. It's a seasoned partner with portable business uh, who may, you know, do something to up the reputation of the firm in some way or increase the revenue. So most firms are pretty open-minded about talking to some people like that on a regular basis. So how do you determine that they actually have a book of business? Because some people might, I don't know, embellish a little bit. That is definitely true. And I have to say in the beginning of working with partners, I um, took their estimates and their word for it a little bit too much at the beginning of the cycle. And then in partner recruiting, after there are some in-person meetings and a firm determines that it's interested in pursuing the candidate, there's a lateral partner questionnaire, LPQ, that gets filled out. And that's where you list out your best clients and your collections over how usually it's about three years and, you know, what your realization rate was. So you build out a million dollars. Did you bring in $10 or did you bring in a million dollars? And how many hours did you work? You build out a million dollars, but you played golf the whole time and somebody else had to be hired to do the work. That's a different financial kind of calculation than somebody who's actually doing the work. And how many people come with you to do it? So you do a million dollars worth of tax advice sitting at your desk all by yourself. You don't even need a secretary. That's a really profitable practice. Or you do a million dollars of insurance defense and you need 10 associates to work on it. That might not be quite as profitable for the firm. So there are questions like that. And I learned that sometimes the partners hadn't really thought through their answers until it came time to really type that document up or, you know, put it to paper. And so sometimes it felt like they moved the ball a little bit. I'd be hearing about $2 million of business and then it was like $200,000. So I got to the point where I had them do, or my candidates that I submit always do a business plan. And it's kind of, um, a cross between a resume and one of those lateral partner questionnaires. So it helps get them ready for the next step. It's not a waste of time. The resume portion of it is instead of... Most partners don't have a current resume because they've been in practice for a long time and nobody's asked them for it in a while. So it's kind of a narrative resume that talks about where they went to school and what they where they worked before and what their specialty area is and who are the types of clients they serve and what's the type of work they do. And then it goes into those numbers for the last three years. What are your numbers look like? What's your billing rate? You know, different things like that. And then we have a little section on what are you looking for in your next platform? You know, I need a firm that has a Chicago office because I have a, a client that had $2 million of, of work in Chicago that I had to refer out to somebody last year. 
I need a firm that has, um, you know, a labor and employment practice because I have several clients who need that and I had to refer it out. I'm looking for a firm that has um, billing rates that are a little bit lower or has, you know, the capability to do these high stakes, you know, litigations in a particular area, something like that. And, you know, I find that getting that done before the process starts keeps there from being any surprises and kind of manages their expectations too. So after they write it up and they're like, oh, well, it seemed like I had all this business, but when I look at it and it needs all these people and I see that, yeah, it builds out a million dollars, but I only brought in 750. So uh, my realization rate isn't that high and I need a lot of people to work on it. Maybe that's not as valuable as I thought it was. And they sometimes adjust what they're expectations are at the next firm or are a little open-minded about maybe a firm that's a little bit smaller, a little bit more entrepreneurial or a firm that they hadn't thought of before. Is there sort of a minimum requirement or expectation on your part in terms of a book of business? Well, I used to say that um, we're on the ground in New Jersey, although we do a lot of work and we've always done a lot of work in New York and South Florida as well. And lately we're doing a lot of work in Boston and Texas and Delaware. So we are um, pursuing a more 50 state model and we have invested in some other databases and some more help. But um, here in New Jersey, I used to say that a million dollars in business could get you a meeting with virtually any firm that you find interesting, but there are certainly a lot of firms that are smaller and have um, lower overhead and are able to look at candidates that are more in that $300,000 to $500,000 range. So I, I would say that anybody who has some business should and, and is unhappy should should seek us out or a different recruiter because there's no reason to be unhappy where you are. I unless you're unhappy practicing law and you would rather you know own a cupcake bakery or do something totally different. Sometimes the unhappiness is just caused by the wrong fit. Yes, yes, that's true. Now, you've had a lot of coaching, which you've talked about. Do you think that that's why you're so good at assessing in the first five minutes if somebody wants to continue to practice law or you know whatever their desires are? Or do you think you just always had that ability? It Maybe it helped. I think that um, I've always had a sense of who might like someone else. So I was always setting up friends on dates or introducing people to each other to be friends. Now I do it in a networking context. Maybe you could be a referral partners. Maybe you could network together. Maybe you could do some work together. I think you'd like each other. So I have a good sense for when we talk about culture and fit, you know, how this lawyer is, isn't how this firm is. And I'll say, you know, I'm working with somebody now and I said, you were talking a little bit more about work-life balance. That's a lovely firm and they do really high quality work, but they work very hard. So if you want to apply there, I would be listening carefully to how they talk about their hours during the interviews, because I don't think that that's going to match exactly what you're looking for. But she was saying, oh, I've heard such good things about that firm. I don't want to leave them off our list. It's your search. It's not my search. 
So do you coach them? Do you coach the candidates before the meetings or, you know, sort of how to conduct themselves or you feel like you're more hands off? We are a total package for anybody who wants it. So some of the partners feel very confident and they're used to talking to people about their practice all the time. They do a lot of business development meetings and they kind of view this as the same thing. But there are some partners who are saying, I've I've never moved firms before. What kind of questions do they ask? How is it going to be? And we'll do a mock interview. We'll do some practice questions. We don't tell them what to say. We, We tell them, you know, they're going to ask you to describe this. They're going to ask you to describe that. You say something that feels true to you. <laughs> we're not telling them, you know, what to say. We're just trying to explain what they might expect. For somebody who hasn't been on an interview in 25 years, it might be a little intimidating. No, I think that's great advice um, because ultimately you do want them to be a real good fit, not, you know, a good fit because they just happen to have a script that they used at the meeting. Do you ever get involved with people that want to sell their firm? I have. Um, I have been involved several times with, um, especially in the trust and estates arena, there are a lot of aging partners and there aren't a lot of younger partners who chose trust and estates. So there's a little bit of a gap for a while. There are a lot of partners who are of retirement age and a lot of associates, but there aren't so many younger partners in the middle. So I have been involved in trying to find somebody to join a firm to take over. And then when that didn't work or when you know they didn't give enough attention to that and too much time went by and they wanted to retire, involved in trying to merge a small firm into a large firm for a retirement opportunity. So they merge in, the firm takes over the clients and the partner gradually bows out. But I have recently been acquainted with somebody who sells firms for a a business model. He is also a former attorney and he it's it's almost like his own recruiting way of doing it as he does some coaching and some packaging and then he helps them sell their firms. So we've um, talked about a couple of firms together, but that would be the person that I would probably want to consult with on something like that. That's really niche. That it's not only that, it's like he has certain practice areas that he works with the most, and they're they would surprise you. He says he really likes to work with personal injury attorneys who are selling their firms. And I thought, well, how would you have repeat business? The same people aren't in an accident all the time, right? And he said it's more about the referral sources, like the doctor or the chiropractor or the you know accountant who refers people. Yeah, that was another question I wanted to ask you is, are you at all concerned or do you talk to the candidates about how they get their business? Because if they're at a large firm where they have this incredible marketing apparatus where they, they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on Google ads, is that going to dry up? when they go to the other firm? Well, generally, um, aside from the practice areas that involve individuals, so you probably know from the family law side or from um, plaintiff-facing either litigation areas or bankruptcy or um, labor and employment or personal injury, those kind of practices, there aren't quite as many... um, 
corporate facing practices that, that use that much Google advertising. They do a lot of sponsorship. They do a lot of advertising on different kind of platforms also. But I mean, we do talk with the candidate about um, why do you think these clients will come with you? How are you getting them now? What are you doing to get the clients you already have? Where else can you do that? What other practice areas do you need the firm to have for you to be able to do that? Okay, so you're a trust and estates lawyer and you throw off um, a lot of, um, I think usually it's residential real estate, but you're going to go to a firm that only does commercial real estate. So you're losing that source of extra income into your book. Is that okay with you? Are you willing to give that up? You know, that's also an issue. And, you know, you get a lot of your, um, a tax attorney, you're getting all of your referrals from the corporate department. So you really can't join a firm that doesn't have a corporate group, right? And sometimes people don't think that through, but, and also the, one of the other things that a lot of people don't think about is sometimes you're at a boutique and you're referring a lot of work out. And you say, well, if I went to a full service firm, I could keep that work and it would all, end up together and it would be more. So I'm a trust and estates lawyer and I am referring a whole bunch of stuff out. And if I were able to keep it, it would be like a whole lot more and it would be terrific. And then you talk with them and you're like, well, how do you get your trust and estates work? Oh, well, it's from this guy who just does IP law. And then this other woman who just does this and this other one who just does that. And when you really think about it, if you're getting your work from other people who are specialists, then that source of referrals dries up when you go to a full service firm. So you have to decide if cross-selling and cross-marketing with your new partners is going to result in more referrals or if you know it's not going to help you as much as you think. Hmm, that's interesting. So you have learned a lot about marketing, it sounds like, indirectly from what you do. <laughs> I've learned a lot about how attorneys market and I've learned a lot about where attorneys hang out. So I do a lot of my marketing on LinkedIn because most law firms will insist that you have a page even if you don't really do much with it as a partner. And that's a good place to reach them. Although I do hear there are a couple of attorneys who are advertising on TikTok. I don't think that if I make dance videos, I'm going to get a lot of new candidates. So yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so, but I don't know if you have to do the dance videos. I've seen some creative law firm or lawyer advertising on TikTok that was fun, but not ridiculous. I don't know. I Check it out. You never know. I have to admit, I haven't been on TikTok. I tried looking at Clubhouse and people are saying that's a good place to be now. I'm going to have to give it a little more time, but I'm very visual and just being able to hear people doesn't do the same thing for me as being able to see them. Yeah, I like Clubhouse. I think it's a good forum. Although somebody made an observation that I thought was really astute is that everybody's on Clubhouse now. So you're, you're quickly becoming a small fish in a big pond on there. But I highly recommend that you try it out. You never know. Sure. So 
Something I asked you about before we started recording that I feel like we should um, give our viewers the benefit of hearing is that you don't help an associate to find a partner or, or a place where they can be a partner. Well, I can help an associate find a place where they can be a partner if they are a rainmaker. So sometimes somebody doesn't have a partner title, but they have their own clients or they have clients that a partner is getting credit for, that they're the ones who really brought in. And so sometimes somebody who doesn't have a partner title, who's an associate or a counsel, has to leave the current firm in order to get origination credit for the clients that were legitimately his or hers. And I can help in that situation. I can also help when um, there is a need for a particular practice area. So right now, um, it didn't seem a year ago like this would happen, but right now M&A is the hottest practice ever. Everybody was worried that the entire economy was going to tank and there would be no transactional work. I have a number of opportunities where if I could find somebody who was an M&A expert, I would be able to place a partner with no business, an associate with no business, somebody who was insulting during the interview. <laughs> it almost wouldn't matter. There just aren't enough people. And there are often opportunities like that where they're looking more for a skill set than for the business because there's a firm that just has so much work and they they could make more money if they had more people doing it. And they would be looking at an associate, probably not like a third-year associate, but an experienced attorney who had developed a specialty of some kind. So it's what's really important is either the portable book of business or the specialty that a firm is looking for. Yeah. And those are very specialized opportunities. I have a couple of recruiters I work with on a very regular basis who place associates. So if there is anybody out there hearing this, who's not a law firm rainmaker, I have a resources page on my website that lists out a bunch of people I would refer to. I also have some time on my calendar every week where I do some career advice for graduating students or people who've been laid off or people who are looking for that next step in their career. And I do have a very wide network of other recruiters. So you just touched on this a little bit, but what what are what is trending? And in particular, how did your practice change during COVID? I was very, very lucky. And um, on March 9th and 10th, I was at a quarterly conference of the coaching program that I belong to. And the coach happens to mention, you know, in just a few days, things are going to shut down. There's this thing called Zoom. You should all look at it. And I had never had a Zoom account. And I said, well, you know, I, I meet everybody in person. I do everything in person. That's not going to work for my practice, maybe for other people. And she said, well, they're talking about two weeks, but what if it's three weeks? What if you can't do any meetings for three weeks? What if it's four weeks? Now, come on, you're going to take four weeks and not have any meetings and not do any networking, not do anything at all. And I was like, oh, four weeks, that's horrible. So I went home and Erin, who does everything, figured out how to get a Zoom account and set it up the right way. And we started running um, online networking, 
which we still do. This is 14 months later. We've been, we've, it's called virtual networking for professionals. We've been having a lot of fun with it. And I was able to transfer everything onto Zoom. I've placed partners who still haven't met their other partners in person, who were interviewed over Zoom, who never met the interviewer over person in, in person at all. And then I, I did place some partners who felt uncomfortable with that and had an outdoor meeting or had had a socially distanced meeting for the last round, you know, not not right at first because Zoom is a pretty good substitute for an in-person meeting. But when you're going to make a life-changing decision, not everybody feels comfortable not being, you know, in person with someone. So there were a couple of of outdoor meetings and there was one where they were on opposite sides of a conference room with masks on, but a few people were willing to just do it on Zoom. It's so funny to hear you say that um, way back when we all had that contemplation. It's like, oh, it's only, they said it's only going to be two weeks. And yeah. then it was, you know, four weeks. And here we are now a year <laughs> later, plus a year plus. So that it's a good, another pivot on your part. You recognize that you had to um, embrace this. I actually think that I will use Zoom as part of my practice going forward, especially because we're pursuing a more 50 state model and it gives me the opportunity to network and meet people and know the law firms in other jurisdictions. And it also gives me the opportunity to have more meetings in a day. Now I used I live in New Jersey. I used to have a lot of meetings in New York City, and and anybody who lives here knows that New Jersey transit is sometimes a little unreliable. So I would always take like a train earlier than I needed to be, and have a long lunch with whatever candidate I was talking with, and you know have to come back, and that could mean six hours out of my office. And now yeah. I could do the same meeting and, and two or three more meetings in that six hours. So I think that certainly meeting in person will always be part of what I do, but that's not going to be all. So what is your vision for your practice? I mean, our vision for the long term is to be the go-to law firm matchmaker for any partners, groups of partners or firms that are feeling dissatisfied all across the country and all the major legal markets. So where are you dipping your toe next? What state? Well, we have been doing a fair amount of work in Massachusetts and Texas already. And it looks like we're going to look at Pennsylvania and Delaware on a couple of things. And I mean, there are some markets that are just crazy right now. Like I always was involved in South Florida because my husband lived in Miami for five years before we met and he's a lawyer and we have a wide circle of lawyers we know down there. And there are a lot of um, clients I've worked with in the past in New Jersey who would like to establish an office in South Florida or grow an office that they have established because the baby boomers who retired, a lot of them went to Florida and a lot of them are wealthy clients and they'd like to keep them. They don't want them to use local Florida lawyers. They want them to stay with the firm. So it's a good way to retain that revenue. But now there's some really big companies that are moving to the Miami area. Um, Goldman Sachs and Blackstone are establishing offices there and some others are following. So it's even hotter. And um, Houston 
is really hot now because um, the the two bankruptcy judges there were trying to get some um, chapter 11 filings to come away from Dallas and be filed in Houston instead. So they made it very easy to use. They put it on Zoom, they streamlined the process and it attracted the entire country. So usually uh, people think of Wilmington, Delaware as the place to file a chapter 11. By the end of this year, Houston is going to have more filings than Wilmington. Wow, that is interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, I do a lot of research. (laughs) Yeah, you know your stuff. You definitely do. Um, So what about this scenario? If there was a solo that obviously has a a thriving practice, but as as we know, you, you sort of hit a ceiling at some point as a solo. And they don't want to be a solo anymore. They want a partner. You know, they want someone in there, in the ring with them. And can you match them with another solo or is that not really something that you do? It's not really something that we focus on so far. We find that once that solo hits a ceiling, there's an amount of frustration about doing all of the non-billable, non-legal work that they've been forced to do, the hiring and firing and billing and accounting and marketing that's taken their eye off the ball of business development and serving their clients. And usually at that point, they don't they don't seem to feel like having just one partner is going to change how that feels. And, you know, we work with a lot of smaller firms, so it doesn't have to be a a huge firm with lots of red tape and a whole hierarchy. It could be, you know, just a really nice small firm, but in order to get the economies of scale, having other people to do that billing and accounting and marketing and HR and all of that, Sometimes having more than just two partners is is a better idea. I would not be adverse to trying though if if somebody would like to contact me to find just one partner. And it seems like you know everybody. So even if you aren't the right person for them, then it sounds like you have other resources that you could refer them to. I do try to keep a very wide network because I like to be a connector, to be the person that refers somebody to the person that could help if I'm not the one. Yeah, I like that. You are, you're a super connector. (laughs) Would you consider in the future, I know you have this niche that we've discussed, would you consider in the future adding departments that do some of the things you don't do right now, like placing associates? Or is that just not really your jam? I have thought about that because it does come up from time to time. And also we recently um, negotiated to go 50 state on a database we were using. And much like when you get your car and you want, you know, navigation and the sunroof comes with it. (laughs) We were going for 50 state partner database and some other add-ons and associate database came with it. So we do have the ability to recruit associates in all 50 states now. It's just never been something that we focused on. So we were thinking that sometimes for a particular client, if they have a particular need, like, oh, we're hiring this partner, but he's going to need some more resources and he doesn't have an associate to bring with him. Could you help us? Or, 
you know, something's going on and a, a firm that we work with or that we know asks us as a one-off to do it, we thought maybe we'd start that way. It'll never be something that I do because I really feel like partner placement is something that you have to really focus on to understand and, and know. And there's so much to, to know and keep up with that I don't want to take my eye off the ball. But certainly, maybe somebody else at our company may eventually look at that. And, and there's a recruiter that was actually my recruiter, who I love, who does a lot of in-house that I refer a lot of in-house to. And I'm always saying, why don't you just come and be a new division of my company? And then we can share the profits instead. Like Where she is now, she doesn't really win when she places people. And I said, I could reward you better. So uh, we never know. I mean, we we may become a little bit more full service in response to our client and candidate needs. And as long as um, I get to focus on my one little niche that I have. Okay. So then we'll have to keep an eye on you and see how things evolve. Yeah. Somebody asked me if I do it for accountants because apparently there are a lot of financial services professionals that are equally unhappy as law firm partners, but um, that is not my area of expertise at the moment. (laughs) Maybe one day. I think uh, maybe one day we might meet somebody who is an expert, but I don't think it's going to be me. Okay. Well, Well, we'll keep an eye on you. All right. So I'd like to end each interview with a few questions, just kind of philosophies about life and things of that nature. Don't be scared. (laughs) Well, I already asked you, what would you be doing if you weren't a lawyer? You answered that. So if you were writing life's instruction manual, what would be rule number one? Go for it. Simple, but true. What person do you most admire and why? (laughs) That's a tough one. I used to always say my dad, but he passed away. He um, He was someone that I was very close to. He was a lawyer himself. And he taught me a lot of valuable life lessons and a lot of lawyer lessons too. Um, in my regular life, um, I, I admire a lot of the people that I see every day. I admire a lot of the partners that work so hard, so many hours, and build their own books of business and manage to have you know some work life balance and serve in in a lot of different you know non billable positions. And I admire how my operations manager keeps track of all the details and keeps everything running. So I never have to think about it. And I admire a lot of people for the the particular skills they have that are amazing to me because they're just things that I would never want to do. Like my marketing team, who's fabulous, (laughs) or maybe, um, some of the people who are going to get added to our ranks. And um, just in case anyone who's listening has an interest in how fascinating I make law firm recruiting sound, we are always looking for someone else. Oh, good. I'll have to keep that in mind. (laughs) You'd be great. (laughs) Thank you. I'll so, see you today. <laughs> so you you have shared some stories about your dad and, and I love that. And I want to ask you, 
do you have your a favorite childhood memory of him or a favorite lesson that he taught you that you always hear echoing in your head? You know, there were a lot of them. I just, I do remember that my parents together taught us a lot of really good lessons, which I, I have lived recently with my kids. So they always taught us that no matter what job or assignment you have, you sort of have to give it your all. So I sold shoes at Macy's as a job in high school. And I'd be like, oh, I don't want to go. It's so like someone hired you to do it. You have to give it your best. Hopefully this isn't going to be your life career, but while you're there, they, you owe them your best effort. And I actually, I got promoted. I became a shoe consultant. They gave me business cards. <laughs> they wanted me to stick it out as a career because, you know, that was the lesson we learned. We learned that if you ever sign up to do something, you don't, if you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. So if you take an art class, you don't have to sign up next time if you're on the softball team or whatever it is. But during the time that you agreed to, unless it's really you know life-threatening or there's something really horrible about it, you've made a commitment. So um, you know, I have some leadership roles in some of the networking groups that I'm involved in that I don't really love as much as I thought I would, but you would, you wouldn't know if you were in my group because my job to give it my best during the time that I'm there. And when I run a meeting, it has to be as enthusiastic as people would like it to be. And, you know, I, I know how many more weeks are left, but during the weeks that I have, I'm going to give it my all. And, you know, that was good. But he always, you know, when I would bring a report card home, you know, I was a very good student. And my mom would be like, oh, did you get straight A's? And my dad would say, well, before I look at this, did, did you have a good semester? Did you learn anything? Do you feel like you got a lot out of it? He would say, well, then, I mean, I could look at it if you want, but it doesn't really matter what the grades are, does it? And I always thought that was nice. I mean, you really should be getting something out of everything in life. Oh, he sounds wonderful. I love that story. Thank he was you for sharing guy. that. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. And I have to say, did you ever read the book, The Four Agreements? No. Oh, because it's a great book and Always Do Your Best is one of the four agreements. Ah, so well, I will have to read that. Yeah. I am an avid reader. I read uh, with my coffee every morning because it takes me a little while to wake up in the morning. So I decided instead of just being grumpy, I would get some reading done. Me too. I'm the same way. What are you reading now? Um, I am reading a book called The Savage Truth. It's about a recruiter whose last name was Savage. Somebody recommended it to me. I just started it this morning, so I haven't gotten too far through yet, but he's pretty interesting so far. Okay. I'd love to get a reading list from you. I'm a total Oh, I have a lot of... I, I read a lot of mindset and marketing stuff usually. Oh, yeah. Give us your book list. I would love to see it. I love the Go-Giver series by Bob Berg. He's one of my particular favorites. And I love all the Mike Michalowicz books. We're pumpkin planning our business now with a coach. Oh, okay. And I love um, The Success Principles. That's like one book that has everything you've ever learned in it. It's just a, a compilation of every smart thing anyone ever said. 
Like my favorite quote, which I thought was from my coach is not. (laughs) Oh, I'd love to read that. It's um, what other people think of you is none of your business. Yeah, I've seen that. I call it Facebook wisdom. I've seen yeah. those little postcards. But like, around. there are you know there are a lot of those kind of things. But it, that's a really good book, and um, I love referral of a lifetime. It's a really good way to keep in touch with people. There are a lot of really great books out there. I have more than I'm ever going to get to. I I order stuff from you know Amazon or wherever all the time. I have piles of them around the house. Oh, I love it. Me, but I'm learning a lot. Well, what, if you get a moment, uh, do a, a list for us and I'll post it because and I would love to see what's on your list. Sure. Okay. Last question. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Not to worry about what anyone else thinks. And it's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable trying something new. Great advice. Thank you, Jennifer. I really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. I did too. So why don't you tell us what is the best way for people to reach out to you if they're interested in talking to you more about your services? We have a website where you can book an appointment. It's just www.gilmanstrategicgroup.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Jennifer Gilman, law firm matchmaker. I'm the only Jennifer Gilman who's a law firm matchmaker. So it's pretty easy to find. And I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to have people reach out to me by email. I'm usually on Zoom all day. So phone probably isn't the best way to reach me, but my email address is jgilman, that's two L's, at gilmanstrategicgroup.com. Awesome. And I will have links to everything in the show notes so people can easily find that. And I wish you only the very best success moving forward. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.